Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Coral Chihuahua. Day up down, day up down. And so welcome to our announcer today, Nicholas Mulroy, a tenor, singer in Fagellini and many other groups. A soloist known particularly for his work with the music of Bach and Monteverdi, featuring on multiple recordings with the Dunedin consort, whom he's now sometimes directing. He's a thinker about art, and many of us have enjoyed his lockdown meditations on particular paintings. He's very much a linguist, the top first in Spanish in his year at Cambridge, but also happy in French, some German, we've clarified that, uh, Italian, and as I learnt in a taxi once, Portuguese. You're not so hot on Zulu, though, are you, Sammy, as we discovered in that project? <laughs> yeah, not so good. Sight reading from memory was a challenge. We're, we're going to get into your beginnings and all that, but let's hear you sing some Monteverdi straight at the top. What's this, Eamon? This is Nigra Sum from the 1610 Vespers by Monteverdi. Formosa, formosa, filia. 
just showing off isn't it <laughs> and what lovely let's just say what lovely lute playing on that i mean goodness me the pacing the color the naughty little tertiary shift harmonic things going on as you go up surge surge from the dunedin consort scoring elizabeth kenny yes elizabeth kenny just one of the best in the business and she's so responsive and alive to both what you're doing at the time but also at in a way that responds to the music itself and guides you as well. It's, she's really a treat to work with. It, it's often thought that you have to have specialist singers for this repertoire. In fact, you do um, in, in many ways. You can't do the uh, Dua Seraphim from the, the Monteverdi Vespers without having worked on that throat-articulated trick. Gorgie, throat is for the super-written-down fast notes. And someone listening to you ornament that compared to... Um, another recording they might have known but you don't have a music degree do you i mean languages is your thing yeah i didn't stu- i studied did music a level and then um did languages as you say and so why monteverdi how have you got drawn into that and what wh- who who are your idols i suppose i mean i remember i think firstly it's your fault because you uh, we we did a lot of monteverdi and particularly my earlier time with fudge which was you know brilliant and always a real treat um, I always thought you had a particular, particularly kind of natural and instinctive understanding of what 
what the music needed and required. Um, this but is also, quite embarrassing because we're three British blokes sitting in a room. Yeah, we can't exactly. deal with compliments. It's great <laughs> at all. Great to embarrass you <laughs> today for the first time. I'll come back um, in a minute. See you. <laughs> um, yeah, and also recorded a bit with um, in Robert King's Monteverdi series, watching people like James Gilchrist and, and I suppose for the ornamentation, particularly Charles Daniels, who's just every time it's different but brilliant and informed and yeah it's it, that got a lot of inspiration and um ideas from him particularly we mentioned him last time didn't we a, a, a recording producer's absolute nightmare as indeed are you um thank you very much be, because if you don't sing it the the same way twice what is an editor to do exactly and it's it's tricky isn't it because f- everything that i feel about music tells me that the that each performance should be different and alive in its own different way. Um, but when you get into the recording studio, you're kind of dependent on a little bit of re- what's the repeatability, aren't you? Which isn't necessarily one's favourite way of approaching things, but there we go. I've heard you sing that many, many times over the years. I mean, I think maybe the first one of the first times I heard it was back when we were performing with Ex Cathedra back in the Dark Ages. That's right. Um, and I remember a performance another performance when David Miller was uh, David Miller was, and just under his almost under his breath at the end of it but I heard it he said to you that's it boy you show him how it's done <laughs> so the, yeah I mean, uh, yeah when someone like Di says that it's like you know great compliment but you know just hearing how your own you know, like your interpretation your performance of it has changed over the years Robert mentioned pacing there I mean that's that is the kind of uh, knowledge that comes just from deep immersion in the music yeah, exactly. And I think it's sort of, uh, there's a risk that we undervalue that, isn't there? It feels like in music, in Britain at least, the idea of specialising is somehow a bit limiting. But I think, if anything, it's the opposite. You get, I find the same with, with, with the Bach that I sing again and again, you know, year after year. This is, it's great music. And, and it, re- it rewards that, like you say, that immersion, that continuous sort of dialogue with it. It's really healthy, I think. But, and this is something I say to students, um, uh, master students particularly, because the ones who come to York to do my course, which is not uh, a historically informed performance course, it's a course about singing in a group, that it's not even about trusting your instincts. It's about what does the music tell you? And the thing about Negro Sum and singing most Monteverdi, and Purcell, Monteverdi and Purcell are so true to both of them, is that the the flow of the harmony provides a certain impetus and you play with it at your peril you can bend it and break it and the thing about what you and Liz were doing there and let's absolutely emphasize again what a, what a duet it is is that she's understanding the harmony harmony and giving you those pivot points and say this is now you can take time and now you absolutely can't take time because the music it's it's in the music if you're if you're prepared to look at it I think that's exactly right it's just it's always about listening isn't it and that's not limited to listening live in a room it's also listening to what the music on the page tells you so Liverpool was your starting point uh a musical family or there was certainly some rugby playing in the family wasn't there there was yeah so my dad's father was a a farmer and also a rugby league player for witness which is like it's the is a real rugby league heartland. My mum's father was, I suppose, as the musical person in the family. He was an amateur violinist. Um, he was a teacher, really, but also played the violin and loved listening to... I remember going around to his house and seeing Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. It was quite traditional, um, romantic kind of symphonic repertoire, but there was a bit of that around. Um, he would he would also sing around the house, which was um, made everyone else incredibly irritated, but uh, <laughs> is, is a memory. Um, and yeah, and then uh, went to a school where... That was sort of the feeder school for the 
for the choir at the Met, the Liverpool Met, Paddy's Wigwam, otherwise known as, and sang in the choir there with Philip Duffy. And also at school, we had a couple of really, I mean, all of us, I imagine, have this fortune of having had great teachers along the way. And two brilliant music teachers at school called John Mosley and Terry Duffy, who was Philip's brother, um, who just had this way of, of, in, of inspiring and enthusing people about music, which didn't matter if it, what kind of music it was, it was just as long as you were doing stuff. That's important. How much like Beethoven does Philip Duffy look? <laughs> I think his hearing's better, <laughs> but his, his hair is wilder. <laughs> yeah. So one of John Mosley, one of our teachers, had this way of, of talking about things much more broadly than just music. So he'd talk about um, Figaro, but with Beaumarchais and um, kind of enlightenment ideals. And he'd talk about Proust in a, in a thing about Richard Strauss. And he'd had just this way of... Brilliant way of talking about music, but also a fantastic way of incorporating it into into a bigger kind of cultural picture, which I think is really valuable. And is sort of, I feel like I think back to that a lot now. And was that the start of your interest in visual art as well? I, I suppose that might be more recent. I mean, that was more of a. I wasn't really aware of it until we started banging on about it in lockdown. <laughs> um, so yeah, but I've always I've always tried to go to the galleries on tour and stuff. It's a, it's one of the treats of the job, isn't it? Is to visit visit places but also see what they kind of have to offer culturally and then after school after school went to um went to Clare in Clare College Cambridge um not as a singer didn't didn't know about the choir um slightly embarrassingly um just went as a as a linguist like you said and, and by that stage I was my musical activity was much more like playing in jazz bands and played in the Doors tribute your, band your instrument was a keyboard with just with mates from school, so I, I I was always doing music, but it was just a little bit broader, perhaps than um, than just choral or classical. But then in the later part of my first year, um, the great Mark de Bell um, was the only tenor in the choir, and he just he'd I think that he'd known that I'd sung as a kid, and it sort of got me along because they needed tenors like almost every choir in the land, and it just sort of went from there. Choir directors note that one, the guy who isn't officially uh, a singer, but could be useful. We were talking about lady tenors um, the other day and what a crucial thing that is for the UK court tradition. Absolutely. You, you never know who's out there. I love the fact that it's sort of chance that led you into the choir. Rachel Staunton, the conductor, uh, was telling me recently that uh, she her first experience of conducting was, again, literally by chance when the conductor of the choir that she was singing in was unable to do the concert. And she stepped forward to do it and she said that was the moment that she found what it was that she wanted to do with her life. That's exactly, isn't it? It's complete sliding doors or forking paths. You know, it's it, it. we look back and think things were somehow preordained, but they're just not. And it's lots of these are just lucky accidents in some ways, aren't they? Now, as a linguist, you had a year out? That's correct. I went a year abroad in Ecuador in South America, um, which was brilliant fun. And in fact, thinking thinking back particularly was when I found... I really missed singing the, the music that I now sing. I really missed like what we'd probably call Western classical music. I did I did do some music when I was there, uh, but it wasn't that kind of thing. And um, so when I got back after my year abroad, I was really kind of re-energised and found, found that I was really um, ready to, to sort of step it up. And before you came back, of course, you ended up in jail. Oh, I'm glad <laughs> you mentioned that. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's true. Story? <laughs> Story. Oh, come on. <laughs> um, it, it's not as bad as it sounds, he said nervously. Um, 
on election weekend in Ecuador, they have dry law where you're not allowed to drink so, because you can't, so that you don't vote drunk. Um, and with, I thought as as a non-citizen, I'd be all right to have a drink. Plus, I thought it's not as if they're going to come round and in a bus with truncheons <laughs> and take us away and put us in jail for the weekend, is it? Well, unfortunately, yes, it, it is. And so they, they took us away and we spent a couple of evenings. Um, a friend of mine had actually come to visit for the weekend. <laughs> um, she'd, she'd been there for like a couple of hours and then was put, put away in jail for the duration of her visit and then got out of jail and got straight on the bus home. <laughs> Um, and the, the the real kind of kicker is that she, um, we were obviously put in jail for drinking when we weren't supposed to be drinking. She'd never touched a drop in her life. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> okay, but this all, of course, is part of experience that feeds into performances as 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 a human being. I'm wondering where you're going with this. No, well, no, just just there is something about your singing um, that you know I've never had to ask you to give me more emotion. Um, and it is a thing in our business that there is a, can be a certain repression of that. Um, I suppose just what, what is central to you as a performer when you pick up a piece of music? Or when, or when you could, uh, could speak to an audience? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I, it and I wonder if it's in, in our, what is generally haste in rehearsals in this, this country particularly. We, we don't deal with this too much. But I feel as if, um, firstly, I, I would always rather that a conductor has to say actually, just give us a bit less there. Like, can we can we temper that a bit rather than having stuff drawn out of me? I hope hope that what I present is something that's like fully committed and embodied. That's that's important to me. Um, also, I just think that I, I think it's I hope it's that I'm not someone who sings in a safe way. It's not kind of tidy and neat. It's a bit more. Um, um, well, I can't think of what I mean now. Well, shut up then. Let's say you listen to. Let's say you're seeing something instead. It's playing, 
and swells with soft desire. No grace, no charm is wanting. No grace, no charm is wanting to set the heart afire. To set the heart afire. No grace, no charm is wanting to set the heart afire. No grace. Charm is wanting to set the heart of. Love in Her Eyes Sits Playing from Handel's Aces and Galatea 
the lovely Uber player there, lovely playing. I think it's the great Alex Bellamy. It's a long time ago, so I might need to check that. She definitely counts as a great now. She's it's just brilliant, isn't she? I, I, I first worked with her, Aces and Galatea with Fagellini in 1998 or something. She played it beautifully then. We had pop-up sheep. It was great. We did it with Peter Wilson. <laughs> not, not complete without, is it? Masks. Masks and all sorts. Aren't you doing Aces and Galatea? Shortly, yes, we're going to be doing it um, as a, an emerging artist project at the Rydale Festival, nineteenth um, to twenty-first of July. Three different venues across those three days uh, in the beautiful um, regions of Yorkshire. It's a brilliant festival, isn't it? It's such the widespread of geography and venues is excellent. I think. And at the other end of the country, in fact, you will be singing it with. Um, John Butt and the group there, the Dunedin Consort at Stour Music on the 26th of June. Still tickets left for all those performances, Stour and Rydale, so hasten to your search engine of choice. Sammy, I still... Th- oh, gosh, I called you Sammy. <laughs> Are you going to explain Sammy? Because- I can do, yeah. Go on, then. I- so it comes from when I was, I think, 10, and I did, with Philip Duffy, we did a performance of uh, Britain's The Little Sweep, in which uh, Sammy the Chimney Sweep is the... Let's say hero, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you, you chose I, that word. But I did, yeah. Yeah. I, I always do. <laughs> and um, I played Sammy, and it's sort of stuck since then, really, completely unwillingly. Um, but everywhere I sort of went in, I went in school, obviously it stuck there. Then went to university, and there was God, just a couple of people who knew me as Sammy there, and it just kind of uh, infiltrated there. So it was, it's, it, it has stuck around. I remember. When you first came and sang to me for about 20 years ago. 2001. Very good. And uh, I thought, yeah, fine. He can do semi-quavers. He does languages. He's expressive. And gave you quite a lot of work. And then a couple of days later thought, but I only heard him for about 15 minutes. And I rang you up again. Can you come and sing to me again? And the rest is a history that no one's particularly interested in except us, I suppose. But you're now doing quite a lot of teaching work. You You were working at Cambridge. That's right. I was I, I ran the choir at, the chapel choir at Girton College for three years. Um, a while ago now, uh, I'm a visiting professor, which sounds very grand at the Royal Academy. But it's, I go and teach on a Baroque vocal elective for undergrad and postgrad singers, which is great. Actually, they're they're, they're fabulous. Particularly the undergrads, really uh, uh, curious and alive to the possibilities. I, I didn't sing a bar of Baroque music when I was at the academy uh, back in the day, so it's it. I I think Maggie Fotless is just really really doing great things in introducing the idea that you can be a singer and sing baroque music in that building at the same time. And you occasionally pop up to York to work with uh, students there. That's right. Looking forward to doing that soon. Mm. Um, very much. Yeah, I've, I, I love working with your groups. They're always there. You, I'm sure it's a reflection on the way you work with them, which just means that they're so keen and so receptive to ideas and trying things. It's it's a fabulous thing. And how do you find the whole work life and different type of work balance? Because um, you are ludicrously busy. I think it's okay. I, I think that a lot of my singing work is quite seasonal. I suppose so I do lots of passions and lots of Christmassy stuff, and then which allows a little bit of time in between to to do do the more a bit more education stuff and a bit more perhaps directing now. So it's I, I find it all right. I think. Tell us a little bit about the directing that you're doing. Um, so I am. Uh, associate director of the Dunedin concert which has been a couple of years now um which is really nice I've been I've been singing with them for 20 odd years as well um and it felt like an it feels like a really natural progression from that we've just done 
um, a couple of Matthew Passions without conductor, um, nominally directed by the evangelist, but not really. One reviewer describing the one in, in Edinburgh, was it Greyfriars Kirk? Uh, the Cathedral. Oh, was the, yes, yeah. uh, as, as a prayer, the performance, which is a nice... It feels like that music doesn't need somebody necessarily at the front beating time and with the team that they have there the accumulated knowledge of the piece is is just almost mind-blowing really so everyone knows it so well everyone knows what they're doing and it's just a case of of just being responsive to each other and being kind of instructive and inclusive in what we do and of course it then means that people listen more the less conductor I mean, i'm not suggesting you can do mile two without a conductor but the the less people watch the more they listen or put it the other way around the more they have to watch i think the less they listen and just for us singers consonants putting down consonants is an incredibly subtle thing that you can just mold when you're totally focused on singing with others i think that's exactly right and it's one of the interesting things about it is that you see much more of people's individual uh, artistic kind of identities coming out when you don't have somebody um you know showing things from the front it's not that it's uh, i think having things conducted is really important sometimes um but it's a different way of doing it and and the way that we try to encourage everyone to be autonomous and everyone to contribute vocally as well as you know musically to the process. I thought it was really, well, I really enjoyed it. And that's frankly the main thing. That phrase of accumulated knowledge is a good one. And that brings us back to this idea of being really immersed in the music. Uh, you know, Dunedin Consort have been doing performances of the Matthew every Easter, or is it, I don't know whether it alternates with the John, but yeah, no, the, as we, you say, there's a lot, of, a lot of experience there. That's right. It's a relatively stable team, you know, as far as these things go. And we've, you know... Th- the group has done a Matthew Passion project every year for probably 20, well, all, all of its 25 years. It was one of the first pieces they did. Um, and so when you get there, everyone everyone knows the piece. Everyone also, there's a bit of um, kind of residual knowledge of how the group does the piece as well, but so that, which it helps. But yeah, it was a really nice. I really enjoyed it. Let's hear you in an ensemble situation. Um, the, the tracks today, you've chosen two and... Eamon and I have chosen to, and I'm going to have two halves now because because I can. Um, and this is the second half of A Magical from Monteverdi Book 4. And Monteverdi Book 4, which I've been coaching recently, it really is the best, isn't it? It's, I mean, we've spoken about this a lot in the past, haven't we, because we're really fun to be around. Mm. <laughs> and it's um, it's just phenomenal music. I mean, we, we did so many performances of that, all three of us, and never once got anywhere near being bored of it. There's so much in it, and yet... It's kind of, it seems so simple, really, on the surface. And it's, it seems to me that you cannot, I mean, we're, we're, we're relating or your, your performance in John Le Bouchardier's The Full Monteverdi Project, 2004 to, to 7 or 8, and in which the exposed drama of it was, was absolutely paramount. But I remember listening to that and hearing straight performances of it and thinking, you can never do it all at once. It's just too much. You can never have the poetry and the tuning and the passion and the ensemble and everything. It's its like a sort of insurmountable mountain. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, that's true of a lot of particularly great music, isn't it? It's not a finite process. You don't kind of complete it. Um, and, and actually, it's that challenge of holding all these things in balance as best you can that, that I think is one of the things that keeps us going and keeps us coming back to it. <laughs> Yeah. 
the desolation of the end of Anima Mia Perdona, text by Guarini from Pastor Fido from the fourth book of Magicals, sung there by Anna Crooks, Claire Wilkinson, Nicholas Mulroy, Matthew Brooke, and Giles Underwood, and the sheer desperation in the sound. Yeah, uh, thank you, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's amazing music, isn't it? And it's the, it feels like the sort of music that directs you exactly how to sing it and um, exactly how to deliver that level of sort of emotional extremity. The performances of the full Monteverdi that, that we took part in, I mean, they were. it's a project that I remain very proud to have been a part of. Uh, and I get an incredibly strong sort of physical almost reaction to hearing that music again, having not sung it for some time. Yeah, it's kind of Proustian, isn't it? You get like, I can feel those venues and that, that the feeling of like, there was a, there was a terror about doing those, those performances, I think, partly because of the, the nature of the audience and that interaction we had to have with them. She just mentioned it was it was done in restaurants with the with the singers as diners, and there would be a meal first, and no one knew who what was about to happen or who was what. It was a sort of flash mob type thing, but also that each venue was different. So you so there were different challenges and different potential problems that you didn't know about really until they happened. Often, um, yeah, I it's, it's a it's a very memorable thing, wasn't it? I think that that is not a recording from the full Monteverdi. That was taken from Flaming Heart. And I would say it was therefore slightly more reserved. Um, but that intensity, particularly with you on the on the alto line, uh, there, the high tenor line, which just takes us to another little bit of singing. This is from A Magical from Book 6. This was written almost immediately after, it would appear, immediately after Orfeo, uh, autumn of 1607. Monteverdi writes to his boss, I've sent a couple more sonnet settings for you. And this is the beginning of Oimel Belviso, which is a Petrarch setting. And Petrarch, 200 years before Monteverdi, almost 300 years before Monteverdi. And yet there's an intensity here. And he creates textures, Monteverdi, that no one else would have even thought of. And the thing about Book 4 is that each piece just seems to be completely rewriting the rule book. It's quite odd. But he does it again in this one. Um, and if you think about the sort of growth of opera at the time, very, very early stages, this is as declamatory as anything in, in opera. I think that's right. And one of the, I think, interesting things about Monteverdi's ensemble vocal music at the time is that you, you compared to, say, singing a bit of Bird or Talis from maybe 10 years before, as a performer and a singer of it, the delivery it requires is much more subjective, much more emotionally engaged. Well, it's surely as related to Puccini as it is to Talis. It, it feels like that, doesn't it? It feels that it properly embodied human music, whereas Talis and Bird... One, they're wonderful, obviously, but it's there's a there's a distance somehow, isn't there, between what you're asked to to do and and, and it seems less emotionally engaged somehow. Oh, interesting, mm-hmm. interesting. Let us please, please, right, yeah. please, right please send directly to Nicholas Moore. It, it's just different. I think that's it, it is, but the, it feels like Talis doesn't ask you to sing as the poet. I don't think. No, I think that's right. I I'm, think I'm not expressing this. No, I'd agree with that. But I think Bird approaches him. Think of the, the end of something like In Felix Ego or Tribuet, which I think that's edging towards uh, Adominum Contribulare or um, You Sacred Music. Talis is dead. You can't sing it vocally in the same way, but maybe repressed emotion is also powerful. Perhaps that's perhaps that's what I mean. Is a sense there's a there's a slight reserve in the vocal delivery required just because of the the particular sound and texture of it. Anyway, his, his, digging, a, digging a hole here. So here's a little bit of that Oimel Belviso, Julia Doyle and not Donk, but Doyle, uh, Claire <laughs> Wilkinson, 
just repeating this oime over the top while in purely de declamatory fashion, uh, Charles Gibbs, uh, you, Nicholas, and uh, my colleague here, Eamon Dugan, singing the Melvoice Trio underneath until it just turns into something else. Listen to that round of applause there for the high tenor at the end of quite a long spell, grueling stuff in the Tuscan sunshine there. It started at bar one, leading the lower voice texture in an ecstatic, quasi-recitative passage, before losing the frankly dead-weight uselessness of the baritone bass and soaring to his natural position at the top of the averages before gracefully retiring. I'm here to tell you that's pretty impressive stuff. Soaring to his natural place <laughs> at the top of the averages. So that's you as Richie, the tenor cricket commentator in uh, Sing the Score, um, a YouTube series which people can look up if they haven't already sated on it over lockdown. Um, so you've got a few other talents then. <laughs> I mean, talents is a strong word, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that brings together my love of uh, watching cricket and uh, early music, which I suppose is niche. Another one of your loves is making lists, isn't it? Used to I, used to love making lists. Didn't we on on tour buses of like top five cantatas. Exactly that. So yeah. what, I mean, we got to know each other really touring the Four Monteverdi, driving round in my old gold Skoda, Goldie, right, gold member, yeah. gold member, yeah, gold member, as it was affectionately known. And uh, yeah, top five lists, of, top five albums, yeah. top five albums of the nineties. That's right. Top five you know, Monteverdi magicals, top five Kenny Dalglish goals, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. was a country and western singer. <laughs> That's Kenny Rogers. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, also questions, M and S and or S and M. That was one of yours. <laughs> would you rather? That's right. So I, I would, I would always um, ask Anna Crooks if she'd rather uh, Schubert or Schumann <laughs> torture her with existential questions. Bach, like Bach or Mozart. That's right. Oh, yeah. I mean, Bach, obviously, but yeah. yeah. Well, that's the. But um, did we do that last time? The Bach and Mozart story. No. No, Bach and Mozart, um, Mozart dies, ends up outside the pearly gates, and uh, let in, and God says to him, um, Mr. Mozart, I'd really like you to conduct the heavenly orchestra. And uh, Mozart says, Yeah, but what about Bach? And God says, I am Bach. <laughs> 
I knew we were going to be friends, uh, Nick, after the very first time we met, though. Do you remember where that was? Uh, uh, are you going to say St Bride's Church? St Bride's Church. It was carnage. And your famous phrase to me at the end, or was it me to you? I, can't I think remember. it was you to me. <laughs> I think we better get out of here before they throw us out of here. <laughs> Just for the for the listeners and for Robert as well, the, the, um, we were singing a hymn which included the word steps. The word steps, yeah. And Eamon did a... An, I would describe as an unhelpful gesture on the word steps relating to a, a pop band from the time. Um, and we didn't sing much more of that hymn, unfortunately. I mean, we, we haven't yet done an episode on bad behaviour in the choir stores because it is a phenomenon. Do, 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 do. <laughs> oh dear. So this, this has become an episode just for us now. <laughs> I actually wondered on my way here whether, there were, whether you would ask me to tell stories about you know, great corpses we have known and, and loved, thinking about Andrew Carwood in Sweden. and um, the, the trouble with telling stories about corpses is they're, they're tremendously funny, funny yeah. if, you were, if there, you were there, and otherwise yeah. they're not. So if, if listeners could just imagine their own story now that was terribly funny, and we'll, we'll think of one ourselves. But that was Andrew Carwood in a piece called El Fuego, in which he, he'd only just appeared, and we hadn't told him that we would exorcise him during the performance. It was about the fire of sin. And he really entered into it, didn't he? He started shaking uncontrollably. In an unexpectedly um, vigorous way. Yes. <laughs> so we had to stop singing and then an audience of Swedish students found it was very funny. However, that's not funny to anyone listening now, is no, it? You, no, you, you listen to the to, silence. It has to be there. Yeah. yeah Tumbleweed okay. rolling across. Yeah. What, what do you still want to do, Sammy? I don't, I don't really know. I'd like, I, I think... Um, I mean, I just don't know. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. I mean, we talked about your art thing. Are you you taking that anywhere? No, I I looked into doing making a book out of those observations about paintings that I'd done just on a Facebook thing um, during lockdown. Um, but actually, getting the rights for the images is really complicated, obviously. And it's just there's a reason there isn't a book that exists like that because it's just too difficult and costly. Um, I really I've, I've really enjoyed it, and I've really enjoyed kind of broadening my own knowledge of that stuff but I don't I think it might probably just end up there. We talked a little bit about your time in Ecuador and your studies there and this engendered a love of all things Spanish and uh, Iberian. Um, you did a great program during lockdown, Cuba Rock. That's right slightly clunky title but it's a combination it br- brings together two you know two loves of mine really um, sort of Purcell Monteverdi songs that kind of stuff combined with um Latin American songs from across Latin America from the late twentieth century. So a bit, a bit of protest songs, lots of really important um, songwriters that we just don't know about in the English speaking world. Um, people like Silvio Rodriguez, uh, Victor Jara, um, who are brilliant songwriters, incredibly politically engaged characters. Um, a Cuban friend of mine talks about Silvio as um, a combination of John Lennon and Bob Dylan, but bigger. Um, so you know he's a huge figure in Latin American music and politics, um, all, all that kind of um, response of, of the, in the sixties and particularly seventies to the Americanization and to um, military dictatorships throughout the continent. Um, it's really great music. It's really beautiful, very sincere. Some great poetry set. Um, so it's really nice to put those two together. They're not natural bedfellows, but Toby Carr, who plays guitars on on that project, and Liz Kenny again, um, they've really embraced it. It's been fun. But isn't that the interesting thing? You say they're not nat- natural bedfellows. You wouldn't necessarily program them together. Um, or you wouldn't start thinking about that. But there is something about the way the accompaniment works and the importance of the accompaniment, but the accompaniment 
giving way to the singer that actually, it, I mean, you brought it to Stour last year and it it just seemed to be a very natural thing, actually. Yeah, there's, there's lo- they share lots of um, lots of features. You know, the, there's some of the uh, harmonic progressions are the same. Um, there's also that's the age-old thing of just a, a plucked instrument and a voice, which is one of the loveliest sounds, I think. There's no coincidence that most um, music traditions have their equivalent of that because it's just such a simple and effective um, sound world. And I'm remembering that you play the guitar yourself and you'd say that that's pushing it a bit, except there are two occasions when you had to step in. One was in Munich a few <laughs> years ago when I was going off stage between between songs to vomit. You were on a drip, weren't you? I eventually I ended up on the drip by about halfway through the first half and you had to take over and play the harpsichord, which you hadn't played before to that's... provide accompaniment. But this also happened at a private concert in Cambridge this year when uh, the guitarist was unavailable on the day and we had to put a Facebook out, a Facebook shout out for, has anyone got a guitar they'd lend me in Cambridge? Near Cambridge. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And I, so actually we went on a, a sort of chase between the rehearsal and the gig in deepest December um, and very generously got lent a guitar and yeah, played that um, that lovely um, Kukuruku Paloma song, which is a, a real uh, banger, as I believe the youth yes. say. Yes, they do. Um, I know, because I sometimes with the youth. Um, uh, look, what are we going to listen to now? Because it relates to this, doesn't it? Although it's a project that you hadn't told Eamon and me about. Yes, and I'm very cross very, with you very about cross this. Indeed. Yeah, I'm getting very cross faces. Yeah, this is from um, Astor Piazzolla's um, Tango Operita. It's a, it's a sort of tango opera theatrical thing called Maria de Buenos Aires, um, which we recorded with Mr. McFall's Chamber in 2016. What's Mr. McFall? I mean, excuse my ignorance, but no, no, tell us. um, They're a a group um, based in Edinburgh. Um, So I came across them through uh, Dunedin initially. um, And they're all SCO players. They play the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. But they um, do really unexpected corners of the repertoire. So there's this Piazzolla. They've recorded um, Gavin Bryars. They've recorded um, one of their records ranges from, I think... Orlando Gibbons to Jimi Hendrix. They're very eclectic in the best sense of the word. Um, Robert McFall is a, is a brilliant sort of visionary guy who just ploughs his own own furrow with real originality and a total sincerity to all kinds of music. Um, and so we recorded this in 2016 with uh, uh, an Argentinian bandoneon player called Victor Hugo Villena and Cyril Garak, who's the, the violinist that you'll hear. Sort of specialist tango violinist. It's an extraordinary piece. It's it's like nothing else. It's it's written obviously in Argentinian Spanish by the words are by Horacio Ferrer, who's like a a kind of first cousin of James Joyce. So the po- the poetry is very trippy and hallucinogenic. Um, the music is obviously tango, nuevo tango, sort of um, Piazzolla's um, own take on the on the tango tradition. There's a story about Piazzolla. Um, studying with Nadia Boulanger in Paris in the 40s, let's say. Um, And she says, he takes a bunch of work and she says, I can see Stravinsky here, I can see um, Bartok here, I can see Ravel here. What I don't see is Piazzolla. Write you. And so then he started writing this Nuevo Tango stuff. Just hearing that, you you start to understand why Nadia Boulanger was such a great teacher. Funny enough, she said something similar to Jean-Francais, whose daughter I was talking to before our Amuse-Bouche recording in 2015. And Jean-Francais went to Nadia Boulanger aged 
11 or 12, I think he was saying. I mean, blimey. Yeah. Um, and she said uh, that, um, well, she said to her parents, no need. I mean, he, he has his music already. It's, he doesn't need me. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? In that sense of the, the, the best teachers are the ones who enable you to you know, be more yourself, I suppose. And Piazzolla is important, I think, because he, he, firstly, he's definitely an Argentinian composer and there aren't that many of them in that sort of classical tradition, let's say. But, it's, but his music is both innovative and traditional at the same time. It's, it's fabulous stuff and really, I've never done anything quite like it and I've, I've, I've very fond memories of that project. Exactly what piece are we going to listen to here? What's happening? This is called Milonga Carriaguera, uh, por, por la Niña Maria. Um, and the story is about Maria de Buenos Aires, who's um, uh, a prostitute in Buenos Aires. The first half of the, the first act, if you like, is about her life and adventures uh, in nocturnal Buenos Aires. And the second act is takes place after she's died and her ghost comes back. So there are kind of echoes of... of um, kind of a Christian story of redemption, but also it's very, like, um, urban, dank and dirty music as well, and um, is a real reflection of all kinds of elements of uh, Argentinian life. En los ojos de mi niña contra compás de otros llantos anda una oscura nostalgia de cosas que aún no han pasado la calle le echó los naipes de odiar recontramarcados la madre y la pereza si el padre arriaba fracasos la vieja tristonguería del blues de los lunfardarios aunque se yo a mi María y otro al lomo de su Zaina la voz, la cadera, la crencha y los pechos zainos. Le van de furca en la espalda las ganas de 20 machos. Terre noche cuando llueve, siempre igual, siempre en su patio. Cuentan tangos de hadas las bocas del subterráneo. Setenta veces los siete vientos del sur la han alzado. Solo a mi voz ella entorna su piel, su rosa y sus años. Porteño gorrión con sueño, vos nunca me alcanzarás. Mi voz rosa, todas las no te quiero, vos nunca me alcanzarás.
Eras de noche, María, de este cantón porteñato, con la trenza destrenzada y el sueño desabrochado, y los pardos camioneros que estiban bronca al mercado. Eran un ramo de grelos y un corden navajazos. Más allá en los más allá, nocheteros y enhuiscados, dos hippies de barba zurda la insultarán con milagro. Las rubias mandragoreras de un zodíaco mulato le harán trece mordeduras en las líneas de la mano. Y su peso queda un poco de azafrán y de desgano. Se sebra página entera como si fuera un asalto. Setenta veces los siete asombros le habrán robado. Le quedarán tres el mío y los ojos de su gato. Porteño gorrión con sueño, vos nunca me alcanzarás. Soy vos en todas las no te voces, quiero, vos nunca me alcanzarás. So that was uh, Milonga Carriguera um, by Astor Piazzolla with um, Mr. McFall's Chamber, who are a brilliant Edinburgh-based group, um, including guests Cyril Garak on violin, beautiful, expressive, full-blooded playing, and Victor Hugo Villena, who is the bandoneon player and director on that recording. Can you see yourself doing more of that? Yeah, I mean, it's fabulous music, isn't it? It's so evocative and kind of rich, very far removed from what, we're used to perhaps but I, I love it yeah we know you're going to Stour a festival um, what else is coming up in the near future Stour is part of a sort of nationwide tour with Asus that we're doing it'd be nice to do that with a brilliant cast including uh, the very great Rachel Redmond and Chris Perves Chris Perves is yeah. polyphemus I wouldn't want to cross him with a rock no exactly <laughs> I, don't fancy, I don't fancy my chances um, and then later in the year I'm doing a sort of a similar programme uh, to Cuba Rock slightly elaborated with the Aurora Orchestra um, so they've asked me to curate um, a programme invo- including some Latin American stuff some early stuff that Toby will come and play for and uh, Ich habe genug um, so it's a really nice like um, coming together of various parts of my musical life that'd be nice and then into December usual stuff but actually doing um, the Schutz Christmas Story which is a real a sort of uh, niche favourite 
I'm interested, just a final question, and listening to you on that Anima Mia Perdona track, the, uh, the Monteverdi, with you and, and Matthew singing. I mean, to say nothing of, of everyone else on that track, but just thinking of you and Matthew as your uh, solo careers have, have really taken off and you've done really interesting things. Um, where does your style of performance and your emotional performance, and you can, you'll have to speak for Matthew here as well, fit in with the idea of the of the singer as a big ego and not being able to sing unless you have a big ego i don't know about the ego thing i i hope that the best way to do it is to just put all the other stuff first you put you look at the music you think about what's happening in the music you think about what your colleagues are doing what what your colleagues are trying to do i remember early days with fudge particularly watching people like matthew and giles and karis and and, you know these fabulous singers and just thinking Gosh, what they do is so sophisticated and so whatever the opposite of self-centered is. It's so much, so ge- so much generosity and so much about um, the the kind of global experience of the music, rather than just a singer singing kind of um, almost to themselves. It's fascinating you put it in those terms because actually, once you try to put it into words, it's actually it, there's a, a, it, one is slightly removed from it. But you put yourself in that rehearsal singing alongside. Giles and others, and and it becomes apparent immediately. We had young Sam Gilliatt coming and singing Indy Fagellini for the first time for Greg Skidmore, who wasn't, wasn't uh, available for a particular concert. And he just absolutely born to it. Um, and he gave as good as he got and and picked up, I think, on the, on the generosity. Because consort anything, consort business management, consort anything, is, is a, has to be generous. It has to be personally giving that's it. And it's, there's a slight paradox at the centre of it, I think, which is that the more of yourself that you give to the music, I think, the more the music becomes the centre of things rather than the self, if you see what I mean. And I think, think of someone like Matthew, who's so good at that. I remember hearing Sam years ago up in York singing some Mahler, I think, in a, in a masterclass and thinking he just really had something. You know, he was a young. I think he was undergrad at the time, but there was some. There was a real generosity and sincerity to the performance that um, that I think we recognise when we we know when we see it, don't we? And we we understand that somebody is doing something that goes beyond themselves. And I think that's the that's the really valuable thing for you know performers. I admire. It's a lovely way to finish. We need to find a way to bottle this and be able to sort of impart it to those singers, those younger singers who we're working with who haven't had the opportunity to work so often as part of an ensemble because I think that's one of the challenges that I encounter with younger singers at, at the let's say the Royal Academy of Music or the Guildhall um, it's it's difficult sometimes to get out of your head isn't it it's, uh, it's really hard isn't it to take yourself out of the centre of any any equation really um, but but when you can do it it's actually it's, it, it can be so liberating and, and it liberates you as well as the, the music and your colleagues and ensemble music is so good for that um, and it's something that um you know they're not that young singers are maybe not as well aware of as they are of singing their Bach and Handel and there's that sense to which you know do you feel it's as good a music if I'm not singing solo is it worth it in the same way yeah they're they're all taught well, they tend to be taught in a very soloistic way but I mean I would always just say that very little vocal music is solo music it's all ensemble you know any Handel aria or Bach aria particularly is a duet and then with Continuo or something else any Monteverdi aria that we've talked about have Genug yeah I mean that's exactly with the oboe or the, or the, or the flute it's, it's, it's all ensemble music when, when you mention ensemble music you're thinking about I guess Monteverdi or, or Howells but 
it's all ensemble music. Even you know, sing Rodolfo. That's you're still in an ensemble. And and when a singer comes and sings with the music and with the other musicians and and is able to do so in like a instructive and inclusive way, it, the music is transformed. Is the flute a proper instrument, Eamon? <laughs> Well, let's, let's, just, let's, let's just be very clear that singing Ich habe genug with any instrument other than a, an oboe and a baritone singing it is obviously an abomination. We better go, otherwise we'll be here. We've got all got things to go to. Um, uh, Sammy, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in. Lovely to be in the same room. Lovely to uh, see Although you. Nicholas Mulroy is not in the UK for tax purposes. <laughs> see you next time. You didn't actually get the top first in Spanish, you know, just top in, quote, some of the papers, quote. Oh. Yeah. So he's not quite as good as he... Uh, yeah, a terrible singer, really. Yeah. I never really rated him. Mm. Yeah. There are personal hygiene issues, too. Yeah. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via choralchihuahua.com. Thanks.